You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents... Monster Talk can be supported by listeners like you at patreon.com forward slash monster talk or by leaving positive reviews on iTunes and other podcasting sites. Learn more at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Thanks to all of you who are supporting us in this way. We are humbled and grateful and hope that we always live up to or exceed your expectations. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Some of our listeners may look at the title of this episode and wonder, why is Monster Talk doing an episode on the platypus? At first glance, this may seem like I'm trying to shoehorn in a nature documentary with no connection to monsters, but let me make my case. Let's just look at the cryptid angle. Longtime listeners will know that I frequently protest the use of the coelacanth, the gigantic deepwater fish that has strongly maintained its outward shape compared to its fossil ancestors from several hundred million years ago, as an avatar of cryptozoology. The cryptozoological literature likes the idea of this living fossil, which I, I get. It sounds cool. But it also demonstrates a gross misunderstanding of evolution and natural selection. The coelacanth of today may be recognizable as similar to its fossil ancestors, but 400 million years of genetic changes have indeed happened. To an untrained eye, you might think that they're the same, but they are not. This is very similar to the crocodilians. Again, if you get past the human tendency to just group a bunch of features together, 
Those animals have also changed dramatically, even though they're recognizably related to each other. I mean, the crocodilians are related to their fossil ancestors, not that they're related to the coelacanths, although with DNA, I guess that's true too. Anyway, my point is, this whole living fossil idea, while dramatic, misses the whole point of what constitutes a cryptid. According to research by a friend of the show, Dr. Brian Regal, the word cryptid was coined in 1983 by cryptozoologist J.E. Wall, who was trying to make the field more scientifically respectable by pulling away from this idea of monsters. The key feature of a cryptid, then, becomes something about how the monster is legendary, and then the cryptozoology seeks to find the real and natural creatures behind these legends. But nobody was telling stories about the mysterious encounters with the coelacanth. It was just this weird-looking fish that people sometimes caught. The platypus, though? That's another story. We briefly touched on this in our interview, but let me tell you with a little more detail plugged in the story of George Kersley Shaw. In 1799, he published one of the first scientific papers on the platypus, but all he had been able to work with was reports from people who had observed the animals and a dried pelt. Like many others who considered the reports, the animal sounded ludicrous. It's a mammal, but it has a bill like a duck. It lays eggs. The Europeans who met them were calling them water moles, but here was a creature that looked like a mashup of multiple kinds of creatures. Now, we have a name for creatures like that, derived from Greek mythology. We call them chimeras. And taxidermied hoaxes were common. So Shaw looked for signs of stitching or other hoax indicators in his specimen, and even though he wrote it up as a real creature, he admitted that it did have the air of trickery about it, yet it was a real animal. So here we have it, a real animal, told about in legend, with incredibly peculiar features. I would posit to you, dear listener, that the humble platypus is a far better candidate as an icon for cryptozoology than the coelacanth. But let's hear more about this animal, because when I say it has incredible features, there's a good chance you may not have even heard of how odd this little animal is. In part one, we're going to be discussing the habitat and the challenges in studying these animals. And in part two, we'll dive deep into their biology. Exciting mammals, the platypus. Monster dog. Tonight, we're talking to Dr. Gilad Bino, and we're going to be talking about one of the most fascinating and, at least in my experience, little understood animals uh, out there, but yet mm-hmm. it has so many unique properties and so many interesting characteristics that I think uh, it's, a, it's a, going to be a real win for us to, to get more information on this. So uh, uh-huh. would you like to introduce yourself, Dr. Bino? Yeah. Hello. Uh, my name is Gilad. Um, I'm a, currently, I'm a researcher at the Center for Ecosystem Science at the University of New South Wales in Australia. Um, I live in Mullumbimby. Uh, which is a lovely little town in Australia. And um, I've been studying, I've been very passionate about conservation um, and I've been really enjoying the, like, I guess the scientific process of uh, raising questions and trying to answer them. So I kind of this combination of uh, my passion for conservation um, and scientific um procedures i guess and frame of frame of mind um have been 
keeping me in like academia for I finished my um, I went through like an undergrad and master's and PhD, which I completed in 2011. And I've been a full time researcher since then. So it's been like about 11 years. Um, I've been studying terrestrial and freshwater systems, uh, and I spend most of my time now um, studying freshwater ecosystems um, and trying to uh, find ways where we can kind of um, strike a balance between the natural environment and and human, you know, desire for well-being. And so I apply science to for conservation and to inform management um and i do that also through education and like what we call like outreach mm-hmm. uh, through like the media and the engagements with um with school and other like you know stakeholders and things like that mm-hmm. well you are perfect for this show and we're so glad to have you here to talk about the platypus today and i think the first question that we all have is What's the plural for platypus? <laughs> is it platypuses or platypi? We've been arguing about this. Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> the number one question I get every time, it's like my my first slide <laughs> in any presentation I give is like, uh, what's yeah. the plural term? So uh, the, the the word, the term platypus is, mm-hmm. a, is a Greek word that comes from the meaning of like a, f- a flat foot. Um, okay. And so because it's a, it's a Greek word rather than a Latin one, the plural of um of platypus would be platypuses or okay. platypodes or oh. even platypoda um but uh, i think there's quite a consensus nowadays on platypuses and so there we go yeah, after you say a lot of like yeah uh it's it, you get used to it after a while platypuses, <laughs> platypuses. and so <laughs> yeah it's fine it rolls off the tongue so that's good. solved now but what about the term duck built because i grew up in a Australia and uh that was the the term that we used is that the correct term or where did that come from yeah one of the key features of the platypus is it's kind of duck-like um bill that it has um Mm -hmm. and so I think um that the the name is not it's it's referred to as duck bill platypus um and I think uh, whether like it's the official name i'm not too sure about that but it's um sorry i was just thinking about a term like koala bear which is you know, mm. they're, they're not actually bears and i wondered if duckbill platypus was in inaccurate somehow or if that's acceptable it, to use that term you can use it it's uh, yeah it's not like inappropriate to call a platypus a duckbill platypus that's good it's, it's like uh it's like the american cow it's okay to casually call it a cow you don't have to use its scientific name the moo cow every time oh <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think officially it's like just platypus um but it's referred to as duckbill platypus sometimes well, we wanted you to talk about this because it's one of the most peculiar animals in some ways and mm-hmm. Uh, famously, I've heard that when the first specimens were sent back to Europe, that the scientists thought it was a hoax. And I thought maybe that's a good theme, if true, and you probably can address that, because it reminds me so much of uh, the chimera and the idea of chimeras, of an animal that's slapped together from parts of other animals. Uh, that's mm-hmm. not what's going on here, but I think maybe over the course of this conversation, we can talk a little bit about conversion evolution how some of these features came to be 
But is that true? That that did scientists believe they were being joked upon when they, this, this first specimens were sent back? Yeah, that yeah, apparently that's the that's the story. When the first specimens made it, it, it makes it, they they thought it was a hoax. Um, but and it, like just it was a it was a dead specimen, um, and so they really thought it was like stitched together. Um, you know, we we'll talk about all these like weird features that the platypus has. But uh, it like I always it makes me wonder. I mean, like so. It, is that the only case where maybe it was there like a lot of hoaxes being pulled at the time? Like, was it because? Well, the, there uh-huh. is. It makes you wonder. The Piltdown hoax. Yeah, and... there, there have been a lot of hoaxes. Yeah, the, <laughs> yeah. the Fiji mermaid. There's lots of gaffes mm-hmm. and um, uh, G- what is it? Jenny Hanover's. I might be messing that up. Um, but th- there's a lot of uh, certainly sea creatures that were sewn together or put together, or you know. Um, so yeah. th- I think there is a lot of hoaxery, a lot of a lot of shenanigans. Um, yeah, <laughs> must have been. Yeah. So, um, but yeah. So the platypus was uh, perceived as a hoax. But I think there were. I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to I'm like the platypus expert, but uh, in terms of like the history, I'm trying to scr- scratch my memory. There were some attempts to. I think bring over live specimens it just it really exemplifies how difficult it is to like uh, captive rear platypuses mm-hmm. in terms of like their requirements for you, you know feeding it is quite i think it's one of the more expensive animals to actually keep in captivity mm. well i'm lucky in that i have seen them before i've gone to museums as a kid and so they're i know that they're nocturnal so it's not like you're just going to come across one uh in the wild really uh but I'm wondering if you can tell us about its behavior because they're they're such fascinating creatures. They're so different, uh, and just yeah, some of some of the behavior uh, questions like do they lay eggs and how long do they live and what do they eat? Anything you can tell us about them? Uh, I can uh, yeah go into like an hours long monologue. Yeah, yeah. read your, read your uh, character yeah, yeah, exactly. sheet to us. <laughs> 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 All right, uh, let's dive. Um, literally, that, so platypuses spend most of their time in the water. Uh, they're dependent. They live. They're endemic to Australia, um, specifically Eastern Australia. Uh, they're found all the way from like far north Queensland around Cooktown all the way down to Tasmania. So we're, you know, for our international listeners, if you look at the map, like that's a continental, you know, obviously Australia is is a massive landmass. Um, and the um, extent of the platypus spans across a very large latitudinal gradient, um, which means that it, ha- it inhabits a wide range of climates, um, all the way from like uh, from tropical up in far north Queensland to uh, alpine in southeast um, New South Wales and Victoria, like the alpine range, and all the way down to Tasmania, which is, um, yeah, it's, it's quite, quite cold there. And, um, um, and so it, it inhabits historically. I mean, there are fossils of monotremes. That's the the family of mm-hmm. of the platypus. So uh, the platypus is related. It's mm-hmm. it shares like the uh, taxonomic family with the echidna. And so platypuses, mm-hmm. uh, the the monotremes. You find fossils of platypuses in um, 
like South America and Antarctica and things like that. So it's, you know, genetically and evolutionary, it has a quite a, we'll, we'll go into that maybe later, but um, it, it, it's, um, I guess it, it occurred across a wide range of environments uh, in its uh, prehistoric history. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and or useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast. Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents. Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming. Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution. Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur injuries, <laughs> paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases. A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So currently the platypus uh, in Australia is confined to, it inhabits rivers and freshwater systems. Um, it is dependent on, in terms of its food, it eats uh, what we call like macro invertebrates or like the big spineless bugs, as I call them, uh, which are, a lot of it is like the nymph and larval stages of dragonflies and mayflies and damselflies. Mm-hmm. Um, it also eats freshwater crustaceans. We, we call them yabbies here. So the glass yes. shrimps, they're quite small. Um, we're not sure like how much of their diet is, um, I mean, they, they may eat maybe small fish. I don't know if it's like incidental or not, or they could eat some of these like, um, freshwater worms and things like that. Um, so that's, that's their diet, um, which is really the, you know, there, there is some of these species the these like water bug species are, uh, could be quite sensitive to the water quality and so like really where you find platypuses their platypuses are, seem to be quite resilient to like varying conditions um we can even find them in some degraded systems but it's really dependent on two things uh food availability and the condition of the riverbanks so platypuses they spend most of their time in the water foraging for food uh, but when they're not foraging they dig 
borrows in the sides of banks. So they really depended on like stable earthen banks. And so they dig these borrows and that are dependent on like the stability of these borrows are really dependent on the condition of the like overhanging trees, what we call like the riparian vegetation. So um, that's really important for the, like these riparian, the condition of the riparian vegetation along rivers is really dependent, like uh, very important for platypuses and also for like maintaining the food web in, in the water. These burrows, are they for a single animal or for a family group or how, how big are these? So platypuses are solitary and I'll, I'll go in a second into the, like their mating behavior, but they're, they're pretty much solitary we don't really have a good understanding in terms of like their interactions with each other. Sometimes uh, maybe we can talk about it. Uh, like when we, when we trap platypuses, sometimes we trap, like I'll get in, a, we put a net in the water and sometimes I'll get two platypuses at the same spot in the net. And it makes me like wonder like two females. And I, so I wonder what sort of interactions they might have. But but mostly they're solitary. Now, platypuses, they have what we call like uh, resting burrows, uh, which are relatively short burrows that they use to spend the, the daytime. So platypuses spend most of their time foraging at night. In winter months, they don't go into like a hibernation or a torpor or anything like that. They, they Platypuses stay active throughout the year, even in alpine climates. Uh, a colleague of mine has this story of seeing platypuses forage underneath like uh, a sheet of ice in the Alpine region. I've been catching platypuses in sub-zero temperatures, like we're talking Celsius, where our nets kind of freeze um, overnight and we have to thaw them by splashing like, you know, like a bit of freezing cold water on it just to untie the knots. But um, but platypuses, yeah, they, they keep going. Um, so they have these resting burrows. Um, and during the breeding season, platypuses, the female platypuses dig a nesting bar, which are much more complex in structure and they can extend up to like a, they, they, I can, they think they span almost like in total, total length can be 20 to 30 meters. Um, a very complex. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a very complex structure. With like dead ends um, and potentially like fake entrances. I'm not too sure if it's like intentionally, mm. but they go through a fair bit of effort to construct these like uh, nesting burrows. Mm. Um, and they end to, so the, you know, as the name refers to it, they, they build nests. So platypuses um, construct a nest. They start breeding during September here october which is kind of uh spring um mm-hmm. and they um they they build these nests with they they carry it's it's a it's a funny thing i'll, I'll send you a photo but platypuses they they're able to fold their tail and they can carry nesting material and they build this really beautiful nest inside a chamber there um mm. and they in which they lay one or two eggs um to answer your question, though, um, in, in like they, platypuses, I don't think they share a burrow, definitely not a nesting burrow, but that they don't share burrows at the same time. So like they don't, um, yeah, in terms of like they're, they, they, again, they're solitary. So, but they, mm-hmm. but a platypus can use 
multiple borrows. And so what we see is that the same borrow can be used by multiple individuals, um, but not at the same time. So they don't like, you know, like huddle in together at the end of a a long night and, you know, and things like that. So, yeah. Well, I've got a question for you. Since they're, they're solitary and they're nocturnal and they just seem so elusive, are they endangered? That's been a really big problem and, and was really what got me into this whole thing is um, we were chatting to um, a colleague, a researcher called Tom Grant. He's almost like semi-retired now, but he's, he spent all his life studying platypuses. Um, and, and one thing through discussions that we've had with him originally was that we because of the difficulty, like the platypuses, they're so cryptic. They spend all their time in the water and mostly at night. The best times to see a platypus, if you're like in Australia and you want to go see a platypus is either dusk or dawn. Um, and you have to go and wait by the river and, you know, maybe you'll get a, like in some places where you can get a glimpse of a platypus or two. And, um, if the times, the timing in the season is right, like you, somebody just sent me a video of two platypuses breeding. So yeah, you, you can definitely get glimpses of them. Um, cool. But it's really hard to understand, es- estimate numbers from these kind of glimpses. And so the platypus has really been suffering from out of sight, out of mind kind of mentality um, where everyone's like, oh yeah, they're, you know, there are platypuses in the river, um, but they're so hard to see, but surely they're fine. Um, <laughs> and and so we, we I started studying these platypuses uh, maybe seven, eight years ago. And one of the first things that we did was we looked at old historical newspapers that have been digitized in Australia, um, which, um, and we searched for any term or re- reference for a platypus. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's only anecdotal, obviously it's not like a, you know, a robust way to accurately estimate, uh, but it does give you a bit of insights. And what we've seen is, uh, we, we came across accounts of people describing platypuses in numbers far greater than what we commonly see today. So Hmm. People referring to like seeing a migration of platypuses moving downstream or referring to them as a mob, which is like yeah, a group, a collective of, of individuals or seeing dozens of platypuses in, in one sitting. Um, so these numbers, like are, I, I spend, you know, my time trying to catch as many platypuses as I can when I go to places. Um, and like the most I've caught in a night was, uh, you know, six um, so to, to imagine a place where I'd go to and see dozens of platypuses is, um, yeah, is beyond, you know, my experience. Um, and so there's, I, my, our conclusion from that is that there's definitely been a decline, um, in, in the number of platypuses, um, across their range. Uh, we know certain areas where platypuses have gone, have have gone extinct have been local extinctions um and so there's there's this term it's called um shifting baselines it's um it's when when we don't have good data for anything really um and and we're not keeping track of what happens over time our perception and collective memory changes 
And you see that with um, uh, like fisheries and recreational fishing in terms of like the size of fish that people used to catch and the numbers. Um, oh, and so yeah, we that's, like that, the, that's, that's like the bias of the present. What, what we know we think has always been so, and that's not necessarily so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly that. So we, that, that's, we, you know, like, so we know that's been happening. There are impact on the natural uh, world environment around us has been huge. Um, And so we think that the platypus is no different um, to other, you know, species around the world and, and especially Australia. I mean, Australia has a very poor track record in terms of like the, extinction rate of, of species. It has like the, the worst mammal extinction rate in, in the world. Um, and so it has the highest land clearing rate currently in developed countries and one of the highest in the world. Um, and so there's been the, the, the Australian landscape has been uh, tremendously modified since European colonization uh, of Australia about 200 years ago. Um so, so the, the the problem with the platypus is really um, we don't have good. There's no there's no like monitoring framework for platypuses. No one's been really sure. tr- keeping track of platypuses, with the exception of uh, passionate researchers. Um, and so we know like they've gone they've gone extinct from South Australia. So they where they're listed as endangered um, from the mainland there, there's an introduced population in Kangaroo Island. Um, and they've last year, they were listed as uh, a threatened species as vulnerable in the state of Victoria. Um, mm-hmm. We made a formal submission for assessment under like the federal, um, uh, federal law. It's called the EPBC act here in Australia. Um, to potentially list the platypus as a threatened species, but um, uh, like our assessment was declined, given like the you have to hit certain thresholds to meet that. that there's very clear criteria of what constitutes as a threatened species. Um, there's these IUCN red listing criteria, which is kind of the global standard for what is considered a species, the extinction risk of a species. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we really didn't. Given the available data, um, and like we, it was very difficult to um, provide a robust estimate about like the extent of decline for a, a species that is so difficult to monitor and and has such a wide range, which is kind of it makes it even harder. Yeah, that's an incredibly difficult challenge if you don't have a good baseline to try to figure out. What are you can't draw a graph if all you have is you know random points and, and like you don't know mm-hmm. what they mean. Um, have, has anybody looked at using environmental DNA to get some baseline material? So okay, so for our assessment, like we were heavily reliant on any observation of a platypus made by members of the public or any like kind of bycatch through scientific research or you know f- surveys of, of for fish and things like that. Um, so we were using that as a baseline to kind of infer about potential declines, looking at like when was the last year a platypus was ob- recorded or observed in a certain area as an indicator of potential uh, decline in, in numbers and um, distribution. Um, we were, we we're coming close to that. Like the criteria for listing is for as like the entry level is if you show a decline greater than 30% in distribution of numbers. Um, 
so we were coming close, but we we now we've launched. Sorry, I'm gonna do a plug in, but we did launch us <laughs> like a citizen science soft a program with the Australian Conservation Foundation, and so it's like the Platy Project, and it does encourage people to look at it. It it it. There's a like a, it, it feeds continuously from the Atlas of Living Australia, which is kind of the national database for wildlife observations. Um, and so it, it it taps into that and and provides a like a real time summary of where platypuses have been last seen and summarizes it by the the recency of observations and really helps prioritize and direct effort for people to go and you know maybe be the first person to ever spot record a platypus in that area or record a platypus in an area where they haven't been seen in over 20 years. So that kind of information is really important for us to, um, you know, slowly progress towards coming up with like a robust understanding of where platypuses occur. And to answer your question more recently, in terms of like the environmental DNA, environmental DNA um, is basically an approach where uh, we can collect um samples from the environment uh mm -hmm. and look for traces of genetic material and so it's um we can do that in in freshwater systems so we basically collect some water we pass it through a filter that's able to uh, really just like trap the fine sediment and and genetic material um and then we can take that to the lab and and really amplify what we're seeing there um and and so this has been a, a, a magnificent tool to uh, try and understand occurrences of of species. So in, environmental DNA really gives you you get a certain signal of how much genetic material you have in your sample. Um, but it does in a, in 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 essence, it just gives you whether like a presence absence. Um, and so it doesn't, it doesn't have the, like the finesse or the accuracy of like trying to understand how many animals you have there. We also don't do it in freshwater in rivers where, you know, the water's kind of flowing. Obviously we don't have a, like an accurate understanding of like, if you take a sample in a, in a site where that genetic material originated from and, and how long it takes to degrade in the water. Right. And, right. Are you getting the same catfish 15 miles apart? You know, it's like, is yeah, it, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it gives a, it gives you kind of an under a sense of like within like, let's say the, the you know, the two kilometers or three kilometers upstream at, at the most. Um, but we've, we, there's a definitely uh, we're using eDNA nowadays to specifically for platypuses and other freshwater species. So there's a, a massive effort now um, by colleagues of mine in, in New South Wales and Victoria. And I just came back from Queensland where uh, we did some surveys there. And so, um, yes, the, to answer the, the, yeah, to add the short, the short answer to your question is yes. Environmental DNA is, um, is a really effective tool to just like presence absence. It's not, uh, like you, you can definitely get, um, false negatives. Um, you can definitely take a sample and get no platypus data there. And, yeah, like there they, they just did a big study on Loch Ness and weirdly didn't get any Loch Ness <laughs> monster data. So yeah, yeah, no. yeah. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> monster talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and I'm Karen Stolzner. You've been listening to an interview with Gilad Bino discussing the platypus. This is part one of a two-part look at these creatures. 
Today, we discuss the challenges for biologists in studying a solitary nocturnal mammal that likes to burrow into riverbanks. Next time, we'll be discussing the many peculiar biological features that make the platypus and monotremes in general so peculiar. But we'll also find that they don't represent a weird biological offshoot as much as an extreme survival of an ancient line. Egg-laying, venom, electrical detection. We'll learn all about that stuff in our next episode. Check out our Monster Talk merchandise at monstertalk.org forward slash store where you can find a variety of cool products to show that you're a next level monster enthusiast. Monster Talk's a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Home of such shows as... Good Job Brain, I Know What Scares You, and I Know What Scares You. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. You could have done a lot of things with your time, but you chose to spend it with us, and for that, we thank you. Monster House presentation.